There were two big moments for us in 2018 when we grew from you know, 100,000 to almost a million subscribers. The first moment is when we started sponsoring and partnering with other email newsletters. What we found is that there's just this subset of the population who engages with email newsletters and therefore advertising other newsletters, even if they're not 100% read by business professionals, is just a really effective way to grow because the quality of reader that you convert is so high. Those people open the audience, uh, open the newsletter all the time, they engage. So that was the first inflection point, lesson learned. Sponsor other newsletters, buy ads in other newsletters. Now it's kind of commonplace and people are doing it all the time. Uh, But in 2018, no one was doing it. The second thing was we got a little lucky and we we were on top of our, our stuff when it comes to paid acquisition. And we had heard that Facebook or Instagram was really ramping up Instagram story ads. And so we were very prepared for Instagram story ads when they launched. And we were one of the first advertisers on the platform and we just crushed it. We were getting subscribers for 10, 20 cents and we couldn't spend money fast enough. Right? We were we were spending more money in, in a day than we'd spent in some months. Uh, it was just incredible. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I'm pumped to have Austin Reef, the co-founder and COO of Morning Brew. For those of you that don't know, Morning Brew is one of the fastest growing newsletters in the country with over 3 million subscribers, and I am one of them. I love reading the stuff that they put out every morning. We have an awesome conversation today about how the Morning Brew came to be from the early days. We talk about their sale to Business Insider this year for over $75 million. We talk about the state of the media industry, and then we have an awesome conversation just kind of on the uh, growing creator economy and around distribution and a decentralized world. Austin has a lot of really cool um, insights into how the world's being built, and we just kind of go deep into some really interesting things happening in the world. So thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Austin, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Can you just start by giving a little background of kind of where you came from and what led you to starting the Morning Brew? Absolutely. So I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, went to the University of Michigan, and there I was a pretty classic kid in the business school thinking I was heading uh, to a career in investment banking. And I stumbled upon this. At the time, it wasn't even an email newsletter. It was just an email with a PDF attachment uh, written by a guy by the name of Alex Lieberman. And I found it pretty interesting. And it was called Market Corner. And I started reading it. And he sent out an email one day saying, uh, does anyone want to help me turn this into something a little bit bigger? The idea was not to turn into a business, just to work on this side project in college uh, while I planned for a career in investment banking. And I responded. I thought that I thought it was interesting. Uh, I wanted to get started. And that's what we did. So it was end of 2014. 
we revamped this PDF called Market Corner into Morning Brew. And March 14th, 2015, we sent out the first ever Morning Brew. I was a sophomore in college. And you know, we were off to the races. Still thought it was a side project. Spent summer after junior year investment uh, in an investment banking internship. And yeah, uh, after that, realized investment banking wasn't for me. <laughs> Went full-time on Morning Brew. And that was the, the origin of, of Morning Brew. I love it, man. What, what about the uh, the market corner like caught your eye? What was he already writing about at that time that interests you? Yeah, I think what made it so interesting was as someone signing up or trying to get into investment banking, I saw the the need to consume content, but no one was doing it. So everyone said, uh, you know, you should read the Wall Street Journal, read the New York Times, read The Economist, but no college kid wanted to do it. And he created something that was more interesting. It was more conversational. It was more witty. It was more fun. It was quicker. And so, you know, I was a fan of the product myself using it. And so I was a user. And so I thought there was something interesting there. And so something to do with the the brevity, the tone uh, was just interesting. And when you kind of joined on, what was he kind of like, what, what did you start doing to kind of add value to the project that, that wasn't being done before? So... A lot of it was just really revamping it, right? A lot of it was not like, what did he add versus what I add? We kind of started from scratch, right? We changed the entire product uh, from start to finish. We put it in an email newsletter format. And, you know, our, our brains work very differently. He's more creative. I've more, I'm more process-oriented. And so that's, you know, how we've worked together to date. But it really was. It wasn't, oh, let's make a few incremental improvements and get this thing out. It really was, let's think about what we're doing here. Let's take a step back. Let's figure out how to make it the best product possible. Was there like a moment in time that you're like, I'm never going to be an investment banker. This is my calling. Like, was it a newsletter that got 10,000 views in a day or just something that made it so clear that you weren't going to go the investment banking route? Yeah. So it wasn't, it had nothing to do with morning brew itself, right? It wasn't morning brew that made me not go into investment banking. I had this tweet storm all about this, this night in investment banking where I don't have to get into the whole story, but long story short, I, I got Chinese food. There's a fortune cookie that was basically like something along the lines of a banker is someone who uh, gives you an, an, an umbrella when it's, uh, when it's sunny outside or something like that, some dig at bankers. And I was just pulled two or three all nighters. And I was kind of like, what am I doing? Like, this is not what I want to do with my life. So I didn't immediately say I want to do morning brew full time. I said, I don't want to do banking. And then I weighed my options. And through process elimination, I was, I was kind of like, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? I think I wouldn't say I was super, super bullish on morning brew. I didn't think this was going to be a, you know, a multi-million dollar business, but I was bullish on the optionality it gave me and also on if it failed, I had a lot of other options. I felt good about my opportunity to get a job again in investment banking or whatever. So uh, it was like a win-win situation for me to, to go full-time on Morning Grill. I love it. Well, okay. So you graduate. Y'all have already sent out the first kind of letter by that point. When did you know it was going to be full-time? And then just kind of walk me through like how you capitalized the business and kind of paid for yourselves early on. I mean, newsletters weren't something, you know, how we think of them today. So I'm imagining it was kind of a lonely arena at the time. Yeah, no, it definitely was. And so the story goes in 2015, media was hot. 
A16Z was funding BuzzFeed. I think it was BuzzFeed. And there was a lot of excitement in the space. The luckiest thing that happened to us is we were still college kids not thinking about going full time. The business would be in a much worse place if, if that was just two years later. But two years later, when we went and graduated and had those two years of building the brand and growing, again, so fortunate and so lucky in the fact that we were able to spend those two years, didn't have to worry about a salary because we are college students. So it was a side thing. We were focused on getting good grades, but we were able to do it. In 2017, we left college. The, the sentiment around media was it took a 180. These companies were laying people off. The pivot, the video failed. Media was an amazing space, but the people who captured all the value were Facebook and Google. Publishers weren't making any money. They were burning capital. It was a bad business. And so we decided to take a very different approach. Instead of raising a bunch of VC capital, we went to, you know, we called a family and friends round, but it really wasn't family or friends. It was more, uh, you know, friends of friends, Michigan network. We probably spoke to 150 or so people and we convinced 27 people to write us, I mean, on average, $30,000 checks. And uh, we raised $750,000 of funding. And we set off to use that to create a profitable business. And we were we were break-even year one. So in 20, 2018, we were break-even. And then 2019 and beyond, we, we started to become you know, quite profitable. And the pitch to investors at that time was, hey, we're going to go build this badass newsletter. We're going to get a lot of people reading it. It's going to be a media company that we could potentially sell down the road. That was kind of the thought at that point. Yeah. The idea was, it was a little bit different than that, but that was the basic idea. It was, we're building a relationship with this really valuable audience. We don't exactly know where it's going to go, but if we can do this and we can get them to trust us, then it doesn't really matter. It'll be valuable in one way, shape, or form. What order of magnitude it'll be valuable on, we don't know. Uh, you know, will it be worth a million, 10 million, 100 million, a billion? Like we didn't know, but we knew it'd be valuable. And that's why we went to Angels, and Angels, you know, had that risk appetite. Got it. I think one of the things I want to spend some time on is just kind of, you know, y'all have what I've read is over 3 million subscribers now. And, you know, what you all put out is important. There's 3 million people that might be start their day with whatever y'all are thinking. So in the early days, and then I kind of want to migrate into how y'all think about it today. How did y'all think about what was important to be putting out? I mean, I think a lot of people get analysis by paralysis or like, is anybody even going to care about this? How did you guys kind of think about this is what we're putting out today and people will care about it? Yeah, I heard this really interesting thing. Do you know who Tim Urban is? I just started following him on Twitter, but I I really I can't say I know much about him past that. Uh, you should take a week off of work and just <laughs> go to waitbutwhy.com and just spend an entire I spent so many hours on that site. I think he's incredible. Okay. And I heard him on a podcast and he said something really interesting, which was you think you're unique, but you're really not. Really, at the end of the day, there's a lot of people like you. And, and he believes if he just writes stuff that he'd be interested in, in a way that he would be interested in reading, there's a lot of people just like Tim and he'll have a lot of readers. And that's the way we felt about it. We, we knew we were, there were a lot of people like us who wanted to read about tech companies and, and the business world and do it in a conversational way. And we said, if we're interested in the stuff we're writing and the way we're writing about it, other people will too. And that's evolved over time. We think more strategically around the voice and the tone. 
But in terms of curation, it's always been we're interested in this stuff and therefore our audience will be too. But as, as far as you and Alex early on, would y'all just kind of go scour, kind of find something that really interested y'all and just like you said, kind of write it in a way that you'd want to read about it and put it out? Or was there some you know, process y'all had created for understanding like what might be the hot topic of the day? I mean, there wasn't, yeah, there was not really a, a plan. Uh, you know, there was no, sorry, no process. We just woke up. We said, okay, let's read the New York Times, read the Economist, read the Wall Street Journal. What's interesting? And let's write it in a better way than they do. There was no, there was no algorithm, you know, nothing crazy like that. Yeah. No blockchain or nothing at that point. No <laughs> blockchain, no, no crypto, no, nothing like that. All right. So y'all, y'all get going. You raised 750K. What do you do with the 750 once you you raised it? Do you hire people or start acquiring customers, paid ads? How, what'd y'all do with it? Yeah, we we put money into into a couple buckets. Bucket one was hiring people. Uh, but we were slow to hire. We kept the team really quick. It was really two buckets, right? We viewed money could either go to hire people or to grow the newsletters. And so, and money could come in either via funding or by revenue sales, you know, ad sales. And so we knew we had to get to scale because the beautiful thing about the newsletter business and content as a whole is it costs the same amount of money to send a newsletter to one person and a million people. But we knew we'd make a lot more money at a million people. And we knew if we got to a certain scale, we didn't know exactly what that scale was, but we estimated around a million subscribers. We thought we'd be able to, to unlock larger marketing budgets. And so at the beginning, we kept the team super lean and put as much money as we could into growth, uh, growth marketing, paid acquisition. So whether it was Facebook ads or Instagram ads or Snapchat or partnerships or whatever else, uh, and we stayed the, the team stayed really, really lean. We started 2019 with only nine or 10 people, and we were doing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a month in revenue because we just wanted to put all the money back into growth. Now that's evolved and, and it's changed. Right now we have almost 100 employees, and and employee costs are way more expensive than growth marketing. Uh, but in the early days, we had to get that leverage and that scale over our audience by getting to you know hundreds of thousands or millions of subscribers. What's the, what was the most effective way to kind of get uh, subscribers early on? And has that changed in today's environment or is it still the same kind of playbook? Yeah, so there, there's a few different ways we got subscribers, right? Number one, the first thing for us is the referral program. The referral program's always been really big. Uh, it will continue to be big. And it's basically free. We send out some swag. So it's not free, but it's cheap. And it's really effective. That drives double digit growth for us. And it's it's like the it's the residual income. It's the steady cash flow, so to speak. That's always there. A couple, there were two big moments for us in 2018 when we grew from you know 100,000 to almost a million subscribers. The first moment is when we started sponsoring and partnering with other email newsletters. What we found is that there's just this subset of the population who engages with email newsletters. And therefore, advertising other newsletters, even if they're not 100% read by business professionals, is just a really effective way to grow because the quality of reader that you convert is so high. Those people open the audience, uh, open the newsletter all the time. They engage. 
So that was the first inflection point, lesson learned. Sponsor other newsletters, buy ads in other newsletters. Now it's kind of commonplace and people are doing it all the time. Uh, but in 2018, no one was doing it. The second thing was we got a little lucky and we we were on top of our our stuff when it comes to paid acquisition. And we had heard that Facebook or Instagram was really ramping up Instagram story ads. And so we were very prepared for Instagram story ads when they launched. And we were one of the first advertisers on the platform and we just crushed it. We were getting subscribers for 10, 20 cents and we couldn't spend money fast enough. Right? We, were, we were spending more money in, in a day than we'd spent in some months. Uh, it was just incredible. And that was like the, the ultimate high, which is when you're growing, you know, we we're probably three, four, 500,000 subscribers growing 100,000, 150,000 a month. That was crazy. Those few months in 2018 really set the stage when we were growing 50 or 100,000 subscribers a month on a base of only a couple hundred thousand. That's when we knew we really had something. That's incredible. Do those, are those opportunities kind of still available or is it kind of, you know, the, the days of cheap marketing on those massive platforms are kind of dwindled or do you see opportunities kind of in the market today that, that mirror what you saw there in 2018 with these massive ways to cheaply, um, you know, get subscribers? Yeah, so these things work. They just don't work as well, right? I mean, it's, it's a copycat world. People have copied us. We've copied other people. So they work. We still spend a lot of money on Instagram. You're just not getting 10 cent subscribers. It's a completely different world. And so we're constantly testing and thinking about what's next. Uh, and there are a couple of things working well. I won't talk about them because I, I don't want to help anyone else copy <laughs> them. Uh, I'll talk about them in two years when we've, we've, people started to copy us. But there are lots of things uh, that, that work and things generally always work. They just may not scale the way you want them to work. Yep. Well, we'll just have to do one in two years to uncover that. Uh, exactly. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll put it on the calendar. Okay. So do you have like information? So I, I read the morning brew every morning. Uh, I mean, I read the main one and it's pretty, um, I wouldn't say long, but you can scroll it for a while. I'm kind of a reader that just kind of bounces around and sees what's, what's interesting to me or a word that pops out. Do you have any data around? Do like most of your readers read the full thing is, are they just reading the beginning and the end? Or like, how do you think about what your consumer is uh, consuming off of all that you guys provide, which is, is a lot at this point? Yeah. So we, we don't know how much they read, but we do know that lots of people get down to the bottom and engage with the bottom because we've clicked through rates and stuff at the bottom. I don't know if they're skimming their way down there or reading their way down there, but I don't mind that. Like that, I like that. I like the fact that it, it can vary. It can be flexible, right? There's a, something for everyone. Uh, if you're interested in business, you know where things are. It's pretty easily accessible. I totally understand that people may not read it every day. That that makes total sense. But it's the type of thing where it's accessible for everyone, and so you don't have to read it. You can still get value. It's not a single dense story. Yep. And how have you guys kind of thought about some of the sub brews, like the emerging tech brew, or um, you have other brews? Is that kind of like there's the New York Times, and then there's the sports section, the business section, this section? Like, how do you think about these kind of sub brews that you guys have built and obviously have a huge following on? Yeah, it's a great question. So he here's the way I like to think about it: we stayed hyper focused on 
a single newsletter for three and a half, four years. And now we're focused on two different types of content. The first type is content that makes you better at your job. And that's where, you know, we call it the B2B business. That's where retail emerging tech marketing come in. If you're in the vertical, whether you work in the industry or, or you work in that job function, we are making you better at your job. We have newsletters. We do reporting there. We have additional events. We're going to do launch courses, cohort-based courses. You know, the idea there is to go deep and be the one-stop shop for marketing professionals. Whereas Morning Brew goes an inch deep and a mile wide, Marketing Brew, we want to go a mile deep and an inch wide and really become the go-to place for marketing professionals to gear up and to level up. So that's the B2B business. On what I call the B2C business, that's you know typically like you think about it, it's like where Morning Brew sits. It's also where Sidekick, our recommendation newsletter sits. We want to continue to create more content and deepen the relationship with our reader. And we're going to do that in four areas, business, money, career, and lifestyle. And as maybe you've seen, we're going to start to do that in more and more of a, a multimedia and creator first way. And so we're going to bring faces onto the platform, people who are experts in, in investing, in personal finance, in productivity, all of those things. So business, money, career, and lifestyle, and begin to create content. And so that's the way we look at it. It's those two different things. Readers may not see it as that, but that's the way we've structured the business and we think about it. I love it. Do y'all have like a, I don't know if you call it a spin room at this point, but your team is much bigger. You and Alex, I'm assuming are not writing as much as you used to. How is the sausage made today to be what's relevant? Is it, you have a head editor or, or how are you knowing that the, uh, the content is staying consistent, is staying at the quality that you want and you're getting the message out? Like, is, do people meet up every day and here's a list of topics and they kind of pick and choose what they're going to fire out the next day? Yeah, so I, I'm not super in the, I don't write at all anymore. Um, I'm not in the weeds there. Um, you know, we have an incredibly talented editorial team and the way we maintain the quality is by hiring incredible people and training them in the right way and allowing them to you know, do their thing. Uh, when it comes to the B2B business, every sing we have an executive editor who oversees three editors of each vertical. So every vertical has an editor, two writers, and we have an executive editor. On the B2C side, one of our first employees is now our managing editor of Morning Brew. And he's just, you know, his name's Neil. He's incredibly talented, uh, really special writer and thinker. And he uh, really helps make sure the voice in Morning Brew is consistent every single day. Yeah, that's got to be one of the the toughest parts is kind of keeping the consistency. Um, how do you all hire great writers? Do you put them through like a test or like here's a piece of content, write how you would see it? And it, do you level it that way? Or how, how does somebody hire like a good content writer? Yeah, that, that's exactly it, right? You, you have to look at writing samples. And again, I haven't looked at a writing res uh, sample in a while, but you can generally tell within the first 15 words if the rest of the piece is worth looking at. There's just a certain style we're going for and a certain quality. And the fortunate thing is we've become known for this writing. And so we just attract a lot of people. So when we put out a job application for daily writers. You know, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people applying. So the top of funnel is there. It's just about making sure that we interview them and we train them once we hire them to ensure quality is up. But 
you know, the top of funnel, fortunately, at this point is really, really large for hiring great writers. You kind of have just kind of riffed on you. Obviously, y'all have elevated uh, you and Alex um, from afar through Twitter seem to have great personalities. And, um, you know, it's not that often that you see two co-founders kind of active out in the world. Can you just kind of maybe describe how y'all's relationship works today and kind of what the difference is between what you're working on and what he's working on to drive the business? Yeah. So it's, it's a good question. It's something we think about a lot. Uh, you know, I, I focus more on the day-to-day operations of the business, you know, executing. And Alex is focused, you know, Alex has his podcast now. So he's focused on being a creator and a, the voice of the business and, and continuing to ensure that people know what Morning Brew is and how we're evolving. And he's also heavily focused on ensuring that our employees have the best possible experience from a, a cultural perspective. All right. We all got bought by Business Insider. Can we spend a little time on kind of how that all played out? And were you guys looking to sell or did this kind of come out of left field? Like what was kind of the beginning of this uh, this sale to Business Insider and why did that make sense for y'all? Yeah, we definitely weren't looking to sell. There was a lot of interest. A lot of conversations were had and we said no a lot. And Insider was persistent and and they, they, we thought it was, after many conversations, we thought it was a good opportunity to de-risk the business, to de-risk ourselves, to find a partner uh, who has a, a large balance sheet so we can think about acquisitions or anything we want and just gives us more flexibility down the road. It was interesting, right? We did the entire deal uh, from Zoom because it was during COVID. So it was an interesting time, but no, we definitely weren't looking for something. Uh, we kind of stumbled upon this. We thought it made sense. How long did it take to uh, to complete from the time they initially kind of reached out to the time y'all got it over? And did y'all have to hire like an investment banker or an advisor to kind of work with y'all through it? Yeah, I mean, it was almost a it was almost a year. It was like nine months, but it was because the conversations were so slow at first, right? We weren't interested, so it started from you know a, a simple conversation. What are you guys doing? And it ramped up. And yeah, at some at one point when we got serious, we did hire an advisor and lawyers, and you, know, you have to make sure you you dot your eyes and cross your t's, so to speak, to make sure everything's done right. And these things can get complex. On the founder side, and I asked this to people that have sold a business, but was there ever kind of a moment for you that was like your mind had kind of crossed the barrier? I mean, you you hear all the time, it's like once you've kind of let your mind drift that we're selling, it's really hard to go back. Like, was that ever that, ever that moment from you of like? all right, we're doing it and there's no going back or had it not worked out, y'all would have been fine too? We were, it, it, it's such a hard question, right? You know, leading up to the deal, there was every day I felt differently. Some days I thought, no, we, if this is a must do, have to do it. Other days I didn't, right? There were so many external factors. There was COVID, who knew what was going to happen? So it depends on the day you would have caught me in a different state. But ultimately got to the place where, we thought it was the right decision. We're now, oh, wow, that's crazy. We're almost six months into this now. And I'm thrilled about the deal. I think it was a great thing. And the funny thing is the business is thriving, right? So it's not like, oh, the business tanked. And so we sold the right time. I think we sold, you know, it was a good deal. And I'm happy about it. And the great thing is that insiders let us continue to do our thing. And it's been great. So I'm I'm totally happy about it. I love it. What, what, was there kind of a, hey, now that we're buying you, 
they're not that the strategy is changing, but these are some certain things you're going to ramp up, or do they just kind of say, just keep doing what you're doing and use this as a resource or were there bigger plays that y'all are kind of putting in the playbook now that you've been acquired? I think the big thing was just confidence in our ability to, to hire and not worry about short-term financials. That was the big thing is, you know, if we weren't aligned on the strategy, we wouldn't have done the deal. It's not like we were a desperate uh, seller by any means, but in the last six to nine months, we've hired unbelievable people. The team has just is in such a different place. And one thing you learn, and it's cliche, and people tell it to you, but you don't really understand it until you you live it. Is you know some of the people who get you from you know zero to let's say ten million of revenue aren't going to get you from ten to twenty, and so on and so forth. And I'd say for me, that was by far the hardest realization I had to make is that some of these people who worked so hard to get us from zero to one and you know, were, were such a, a part of the business, was part of their identity, weren't going to be the right people to lead us moving forward. And I was too slow to identify that. And that was a big mistake on my part. But when I identified that, I realized we're going to need to hire some senior people. We're going to cost a lot of money across the board. And we're still a bootstrap business. We can't afford to have a bad 12 or 18 months. And so, yeah, we were, it just gave us so much more leverage. Can you dive a little deeper into what's that level? Like who are the hires that are important now to take you forward? Like um, what are the the key roles that as a business like this is growing? You're like, all right, we're going to have to level up. We're going to have to pay up, but this is what we're getting. What, what are you focused on there? Yeah. So it, it, it's tough, right? Cause it's everything. The answer is really everything. Um, and I know that's not a good answer, but it's, we had to hire, we had to level up across the board, right? Alex and I had zero media experience. And that's okay. In fact, that was a great thing early on, but we need to hire some people who have managed teams and run teams. Some of our teams are 20, 30 people and you need people who have been there and done, you know, they've done it or at least have seen it, right? We had a bunch of people, we just hadn't seen it before. And just because we got to where we were, doesn't mean we're going to continue to go. And so there are some positions that we had to really level up, but we didn't have it all, right? Finance, like we haven't had a full-time accountant now. You've asked me six months ago, we have a full-time accountant. I'd say, that's, that's crazy. But when you're a hundred person company, you need a full-time accountant. And those, you know, more operations roles, the HR team is now four or five people, I believe. So we've, we, you know, we, we've built some infrastructure there, but also just people that run teams. We hired a GM of the B2B business who's an all-star. We hired a head of product, a head of growth and analytics. We just hired these people who, can just move faster because they've seen it done before. And that's what we needed to, to succeed. You know, we sat around the table for so, so long and said, we're not moving fast enough. We're not actually not moving fast enough. And to be honest, the answer wasn't a strategy thing. It wasn't, there was a mistake in strategy. It was, we had the wrong people sitting around the table. And so the people identified the right problem. And for six months straight, we said, how can we move faster? And the answer was, we need different people sitting around the table. And now that we have those people and we built the infrastructure and we've worked really hard for the last nine months, we can now grow at a faster rate. That is absolutely not in any way, shape or form a knock on anyone, 
right? If anything, it's a knock on myself because I didn't identify that early enough and I didn't make that transparent enough with everyone. Yep. Uh, we just did, we just didn't expect to grow the way we did. Yep. It's the messy middle, man. What gets you here isn't going to get you there. And it's, uh, I think, across every business, it's something that's a resounding uh, discussion is it's tough because the people that got you success, it's really hard to think, you know, they're not leveling up, but it's it's not a them thing. It's just that's where the business is. Um, and I can imagine it puts a lot of pressure on on you and it's it's emotional. It's personal. These are people that, you you know, you love. Yeah, it, it sucks. And it's one of those things where, you know, they oftentimes it is definitely viewed as a personal thing. Right. Yep. People view it as a personal thing. And for me, it was anything but personal, right? It's, it's it, it was the last decision I went to make. It doesn't mean I wasn't confident in it, right? And I think that that that's a tough thing is people see you so confident, and they view they they translate that that confidence into you being malicious. Yep. But it really is is anything but that. Yep. Talking about like personal, um, are y'all a fully remote company or as things kind of open back up, will y'all be an office centric company or is it a combination of both? I, I was actually just having this conversation with a, uh, another founder. And I think the answer is we're going to start off with a hybrid culture. We're going to have some people who are, you know, live in other States and either they're going to, it's going to take them time for their lease to expire for them to move to New York city, or they're just not going to move to New York city which is totally fine, but we're going to have an office and we'll see. Maybe that'll work horribly, right? There are people predicting that hybrid work doesn't work. There are people predicting that fully remote doesn't work. You know, everyone is, is making their own predictions and just guessing. You have to experiment and see. Uh, my belief is that every, everything is too hyperbolic. Everything is too absolute, right? Can remote work work? Yeah. If you build the right infrastructure, hire the right people, have the right processes. Can in-person work? Yes, it can work. I think it's harder to hire the right people because you're really limiting yourself. But if it's the right type of business and and all the thing, all the stars align, that's possible. And then for us, hybrid, I think it will work too. We just have to you know hire the right people and and build the right systems in place to because there are downsides. We have to we have to you know negate those those negative effects. Yep, I think the biggest thing from my standpoint. I mean, we only have twenty five people here in Fort Worth, but. Um, you just, you know, ripped on personal is like, I'm still really, I think everybody's, uh, accepting of it right now, given the environment. It's just, it's maybe it's just me. It's tough to think about building really deep personal relationships with people, you know, over zoom and over the internet. Um, and I don't know if y'all have any magic bullet or strategy that's helped y'all, you know, keep the team close throughout all this, but it seems like it's becoming tougher and tougher as time goes by. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think the question, I mean, the question there is, do you need to have deep personal relationships with the people you work with? I think historically you did because it was one of the, the only places to meet people. But I'm not so sure if everyone at the business needs to have deep relationships with other people. I don't think no one at the business should have deep relationships. But, you know, if you have a developer who would rather spend time more time with their family and maybe they don't want to have deep relationships. Does that make them a worse developer or a worse member to the team because they work in Wyoming and they wake up and they code from, you know, 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. so they can work, they can spend time with their family? Like, I don't think so. And so 
I think it's just about acknowledging and embracing the, the negative effects. Some people want to be best friends with their coworkers and you're going to have to pick a company, right? This is going to be one of those things where culture is going to matter more and more. And it's a pick and choose thing. You're going to need to pick what you want. So I don't think that, I think the ultimate answer is flexibility, right? You're going to have to let people do what they want to do. Yep. Yeah. Somebody said on Twitter the other day, they're just like, you know, companies that offer unlimited vacation or something like that. It's like, look, people don't want unlimited vacation. They just want to be able to take their kids to, you know, soccer practice and go to the doctor and not feel guilty about it. And, um, you know, the hybrid remote work style offers that type of flexibility, but, um, yeah, it'll just be interesting to kind of see how it all plays out over the next, you know, year, two years as we ramp back up again. Yeah. I think the one thing people are really underestimating is what does it look like when your universe of people to hire is not, I, where, where do you, where are you based? I'm not even sure where you live. I'm in Fort Worth, Texas. Got it. So how many people live in, in Fort Worth and the surrounding area? Do you know? I mean, it's DFW. So, I mean, we're an 8 million person metroplex now. Yeah. Fort Worth, I think 1.1 million. Um, but we have six accountants in India. I mean, we've been hiring remote for a lot of our admin jobs for the last two years. And I don't see that changing. I mean, we pay really competent, amazing people uh, with uh, just a ton of ambition, a fifth of what people make in America. Um, and like we said, now that talent's kind of everywhere, it's what what needs to be local, what can be outsourced. You know, talent doesn't have to necessarily be here. Um, so I don't know. That's a long answer to your question. No, no, it's, it's the perfect answer, right? And I think it's like, you know, what jobs... Would you, you're going to have to be strategic. What jobs do you want to choose out of those 1.1 million people, knowing that if you hired globally, you'd have a couple billion people, right? So what job do you need in person versus what job do you need to outsource? And to your point, we even outsource, you know, people who are, who are 100 to say, oh, we want 100% in office. Those companies aren't 100% in office. I can guarantee you they work with law firms. They work with accounting firms. And so it's funny how certain things have become norms. It's like, oh yeah, it's totally normal to work with this outsourced accountant. But it's, you know, but you, you know, some other, some other jobs, it's just, you, you, you think it doesn't work. And I, I think it will work for a lot of jobs. Totally agree. I, I want to talk just about the industry just a little bit. Um, you know, again, this goes back to where I started. Y'all get to, y'all get to talk to 3 million people a day. What you say matters and, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, what you say is what people believe. And so I feel like we're in a period where, you know, obviously we just got out of a president that everything was fake news. I think there's a lot of people pointing out that there's, you know, a lot of these legacy media companies. Um, I think we saw the 60 Minutes example the other day with the Florida governor. Like, how do you think about delivering the truth and not just clickbait? And I'm not saying that y'all do one way or the other, but as a, as as more of a leader in the industry, like how do you think we're moving forward? Are, are things good? Can we get better? Just like how do you think about all that? Yeah, I think a lot of this stuff is is overblown, and or there's nothing to really do about it. And when I when I say that, I mean you know 30 years ago, there was basically a single source of truth. And it was like, you know, it was the New York times. It was, it was papers. And there were 10 people, probably less who control what was in the cover of the New York times. And so 
I only wish we could have been there to understand their biases and the things they put in that paper that weren't true, were cherry picked. There was just no visibility. And so, yeah, like, am I surprised 60 Minutes did that? Like, no, of of course not. But I, I don't think this is new and unique. People have always been framing things to whatever fits their narrative. And so I don't think it's new or unique. I just think it's it, 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 there's more transparency and it's going to tend toward the extremes. Everyone is now a publisher. No one has the right to more distribution than anyone else. The New York Times doesn't have the right to more distribution than an Austin Reef. I should be able to, if, I, if, if my content is good enough and people like me, I should be able to have more Twitter followers, New York Times, than I can. And so we're going to be in a really interesting time where it really is this individuals over institutions mindset. People follow and believe in and react to and listen to individuals, not institutions. That doesn't mean all institutions are going to die. Uh, some are going to be fine. But yeah, I, I just, you're going to find people you like, you're going to listen to them. But even those people who you think are really truthful and you really respect and trust, they're also spinning a narrative. Maybe it's just a narrative you believe in and you like, and therefore you don't think they are. But everyone's you know, vision or version of reality is distorted based on their experiences. So I think it's a little overblown. Obviously, there's some bad examples, right? Obviously, there's some media models that aren't great, but there have never been media models that were great. And so I just think we're talking about it more, and it's not a bad thing to talk about, but I don't think it's, it's, it's nearly as... I think it's very overblown right now. I don't think it's nearly as as different from the past as it was before. It just wasn't as transparent. Yep. That's super good take. Um, like, do you have any feelings on, I know there's, we can talk about clubhouse for a little bit, but clubhouse had come out the New York times, you know, journalists were enraged by it. Were they enraged that there was no longer their ability to kind of control the narrative and it was just this raw speaking or was there something more to it uh, from your opinion? Yeah, I think so. Here's here's one thing I think people do too often is the New York Times is not a person. It's a publication. And there's I don't know, 100. I have actually no idea, maybe 250 journalists there. So I find it funny when people on Twitter talk about the New York Times like it's a single person when it's a combination of people. So, you know, one person on the New York Times said that. Yeah. Was that a ridiculous take? Yeah, it was. I mean, <laughs> unfettered conversation. <laughs> it was absurd. Um, but the, the, you know, the New York times doesn't believe anything. People at the New York times, a person, in the New York times believe that. And yes, that person is probably pretty bitter because structurally all of these democratization tools or rep creator economy, whatever you want to call them, they're all hurting, uh, journalism. Now, the funny thing is they're not hurting the New York times. The New York times is going to be totally fine. Clubhouse, Substack, they're not going to hurt the New York times. Who they're going to hurt is the middle of this barbell. These companies who might, you know, I think I think the New York Times put out a report, uh, or, or maybe they did, maybe they were speculating. I can't remember that they don't want any other journalists having subscription newsletters, you know, to make a secondary income. And the New York Times can do that and be totally fine because there's the New York Times. What's going to happen though is a lot of these other media companies who aren't the New York Times are going to copy those policies, and they're going to lose all the reporters because they're not the New York Times. And they, they don't have the same power over their employees that the New York Times has because of the built New York Times ability to pay and New York Times brand and everything else. So yeah, I mean, people are bitter about the, these things as they've always been. 
Uh, and and we will we will see what happens. I think Clubhouse is interesting. I think Substack is interesting. I think all these things are, are really interesting. But it's really just all about the power shifting from institutions, brands, and platforms to individuals. Have you experienced at all like people applying for jobs at Morning Brew that are coming from some of these institutions that are worn out? Or are most of the folks that you recruit kind of coming at it from a fresh lens, um, not having kind of been, quote unquote, institutionalized? It, it, it depends, right? We see everything. It's kind of like a who knows thing, right? Like, you know, we, we, we're constantly hiring different type of people, different publications we have, but we hire different people. But I think people come to Morning Brew and it's a, it's a breath of fresh air. It, you kind of get out of the, the legacy journalism mindset. It's not to say we're not doing journalism. We are. But it just, we weren't crafted. We weren't co-founded or, or started by someone who'd spent a career in journalism. And I do think it's a little bit of a breath of fresh air for people. Yeah, no, I love it. All right, let's just shift to some personal things that I think you're, I, I know you're involved with just from looking, but you are kind of a uh, figure that's showing that kind of your social capital is kind of transferring into financial capital and you've started kind of a rolling fund. So what's your kind of thesis around all that and what's your goal with all of this and, and what are the things that are interesting to you right now? Yeah, there are a few ways to take this. I can take this more acutely about me and then about these things more generally. More acutely for me, uh, I love spending time with really smart people and smart people don't always, but uh, oftentimes start businesses or try things. And it's a little bit selfish for me. Having the fund allows me, gives me more exposure to really smart people at really interesting times in their lives and careers. I have an excuse to get on calls with people who otherwise would not want to talk to me. And I really believe I do add value to a lot of these businesses. And the value I think I add is a few things. One, I just understand building an audience, building you know, media, marketing. I, I just get it. I get the value of that because I've been through it. But the second thing that I, I even underestimated a bit is I've also grown a company to 100 people. And a lot of the founders who I invest in, it's Seed, Seed Plus, you know, Series A, they're at 20, 25 people, but they're not at 20, 25 people and they've raised $10 million because of their operational expertise. It's, they have a great idea, they built a great product and they have traction on that product. And so I can come in and really help them think through how to build out an HR team, how to build out a sales team, how to build out an operations team and how to think about when to hire, how to hire and all of those things. And so it's really interesting. And I, and I think I underestimated that, but it's been really helpful for my founders. And and through that, I've gotten a lot of founder referrals where my founders will re intro me to other founders. And so that's what I provide to companies. And yeah, I I, I think, you know, I have built up a, a personal brand that allows me to do this. And I'm really interested by this idea more broadly of how the internet, the combination of internet uh, you know, social media and therefore distribution combined with these tools, whether it's Substack or Clubhouse or AngelList, how the combination of these things are going to allow people to have so much leverage and do so much that they couldn't already do. And the world is just shifting to a world which if you have brand distribution, you can essentially do everything. And the ultimate example of this is Chamath, right? You look at how many things Chamath is doing. It's, it's pretty wild how he's leveraged his brand and his 
and his distribution. He's really built up a Twitter following and, you know, people follow him into the, like his stocks, are like passion stocks. People follow him because they trust him. And I am by no means saying I'm Chamath, but I do think these tools in my distribution allow me to do three things, operate a business, invest in other businesses and create content. And those are the three things I want to spend my life doing is operating, investing and creating. And I believe the three of those really build on themselves. Now, some of those are, are more nascent than others, right? I, right now, I only create content on Twitter. I wish I created more content. I just don't have the time. But that those are the three pillars which I think I can, I can grow. And those three can add and, and work, you know, work to help the other pillars uh, succeed. And Morning Brew is kind of your, in one sense, your funnel of what's like what's popular, what's going on that helps you, you know, know what to write as far as content. And it makes you really relevant when you're investing. So it's, that's a really interesting flywheel and the better morning brew goes, it seems like the better everything else is going to go. Is that kind of how you think about it? Absolutely. What do you think about BitClout? What do you just think about like the decentralized, let's just start with the decentralized world uh, that's kind of being built. I know you're a fan of crypto and we've talked about things like BitClout, just like what is your overall kind of thesis on how you're thinking about the world as we think about this decentralized world that's kind of coming at us pretty quickly? Yeah, so I, I want to first start, start off by saying that I, I'm no expert here, right? I, I don't know that much. But what I am interested in is this idea of, again, going back to the the institutions thing, if there's a lack of trust in institutions, I do think that's going to make way for a rise of decentralized products, platforms, things like that. I also find from an intellectual level, the concept of BitCloud to be fascinating. Now, I would never advocate for anyone to put any money in BitCloud. I don't know enough about it. I don't know if it's a scam. I don't know what. But the idea is interesting. And I do think there's enough proof of concept just like I don't know if Clubhouse by itself is going to succeed, but they've made way for this market of, of audio, uh, social audio, in a way where even if they fail, someone will succeed, whether it's Spotify or Twitter. Similarly, I think BitClout is going to pave way for a, a decentralized way for people to bet on and invest in other people. All right? Let's go to our, our mutual friend, Nick. Uh, Nick Huber, who's sweaty startup on Twitter. You know, right now I'm not at a point in my life where I want to buy Nick's course because I just don't have time to get involved in in real estate, at least in the way his course provides. But I really appreciate Nick's content. And I'd love to one, support Nick, and two, bet on Nick's rise because I think Nick is is awesome. Right now I have no way to do that. BitCloud gives you a way to invest in creators. And so whether it's BitClout or anyone else, I think this is going to be something that succeeds. Uh, but I can't advocate for BitCloud itself. I yeah. am experimenting with the platform because I find the platform to be interesting and it's the only way I know how to do this right now. No, I, and I, I, I know nobody's you know, can know if BitCloud's going to be the thing. And I'm with you. I think the, the, I read their one page or their white paper. It's, uh, it's pretty unbelievable. Kind of what you said about Chamath. And then you take it all the way to the top, a guy like Elon Musk that's now got 50 million, you know, free followers on Twitter and can basically move the market and move the world with a tweet. 
Do you think like this is going to be government regulated in any way? I mean, it's happening so quick, but you got a guy that can tweet anything basically and move markets like quicker than we've ever seen. Um, is this just the beginning or is this just the new world we're arriving in? So I, I think, I don't think it's going to be regulated. I, I think we're at a point in time now. And this goes also back to all like the censorship stuff and should Facebook or Twitter censor their content. Uh, I'm very much of the belief that this is a point in time where this is all very new. And therefore, our generation or people living right now don't know how to react to it. And I know this isn't the perfect example, but the way I like to compare it to is, well, when you walk into a grocery store and you see the tabloids when you're checking out, you know they're tabloids. And you don't go crazy when it has some, some ridiculous headline. And so I think whether it's Gen Z or the next generation, people are just going to get used to it. They're going to understand, you know, before you couldn't hear the president of the United States on the radio, or you couldn't watch him, watch him or, or her at some point on TV. And now you can. And I'm sure when TV launched, people were like, oh my God, the president can just overnight just broadcast to the world. And I know social is, is, is more drastic, but I just think society is going to catch up and we're going to get used to Elon tweeting and we're not going to react to everything he says. And we're going to get used to all of this stuff. And so I think it'd be a mistake to have Jack Dorsey or, or um, Mark Zuckerberg, or certainly the US government decide what is truth and what is not truth. So I think ultimately it's up to us to just get used to it. And this isn't a political question. It's just using an instance that I think was like the first big cancellation of our era. But do you think the taking down of Donald Trump off the internet is a is 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 the beginning of that new era? Is is was it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Or is it um, obviously it's, it's this isn't about like do you like Trump or not? But was this kind of the kickoff of this whole de rush to decentralization? Or like, how do you think about it from your industry standpoint where y'all are putting out information every day? Yeah, I think it was a big moment. And especially, I think it'll be used, whether it was or not, used as the, you know, and in, in history books, if decentralized social networks, whatever takes off, this will be used as the big uh, moment, even if it's not the case that it actually was the, was the catalyst. But, you know, it was the good or bad thing. I think there are arguments both ways. I think it's really, really tough. But at the end of the day, you know, Twitter's a, a private company. They can do whatever they want. Right? They, they can, you know, the, just like you can, you can refuse service to people who come into your restaurant or your bar if they're acting in a way that is against your, you know, your terms and conditions, Twitter can too. And so, you know, it, it is what it is. He's no longer the president of the United States. It's not like you're, you're deplatforming the president, former president. You know, it's it's one of those things where that's it's, if we're going to have centralized worlds, those things are going to happen. One of the things I think about, even as it relates to him coming back onto the internet, if like Amazon and all of these hosting services are unwilling to host him, and social networks are not going to be open to like distributing his stuff, and and maybe we don't even have to talk about him, but what happens when you can't actually get on the internet? Like the internet is Google and Amazon and all these things kind of combined now and all of them are refusing service. So like, how is he, how does somebody like that even like arrive back on the internet? Do they have to build all their own servers and spend all this amount of capital kind of reintroducing themselves back or how, do, how does that even happen? 
Yeah. So I think this is the scary thing, right? To me, it's not that scary when, I mean, it's a little scary, but it's not like, it doesn't really scare me when someone like a Twitter deplatforms someone. But when you think about going to the, and Ben Thompson writes about this and he's, he's way better at speaking to this than I am. But when you get deplatformed at that level, right? The, the, the AWS level, that's definitely a scarier thing because yeah, you're basically booted off the internet. Yeah. I mean, is that, and, and, and not even related to this, but is that the internet now? Like you have to be approved by Amazon and kind of Google to even play, or does the decentralized world now put us down a path that people can arrive again without all this additional costs that nobody else has to deal with when they're spinning back up? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the hope, right? The, the hope is, or could be that, that it is the, uh, that decentralization is the solution. I think there will be decentralized platforms for sure. I don't know when, but I do think uh, it, it will happen because, you know, and I, I think countries are going to look at look at this in, in other countries and be like, wait, the U.S. just deplatformed the president, or not the U.S., but a U.S.-based company based off of U.S. politics just deplatformed the president of the United States of America. What can they do to us in our country and our president? I think that is scary. If you're another country, you're like, whoa, look at the power that these US-based companies have. And so who knows, maybe someone like uh, like in India or um, other countries are, are going to become proponents of decentralization because right now, US companies really dominate the distribution of, of, of like words and, and audience. Yep. Have y'all ever written something through the morning brew that the audience had like a big backlash on? And it like ruined your day, or have y'all have y'all ever tried to? Has anybody ever tried to cancel the morning brew for something they wrote? Not that I can think of. Nothing, nothing too crazy. You know, we made some mistakes, and people get offended by mistakes. And you know, we've we've there have been a few small things here and there. But I think what, as long as what you're doing is not like really bad, right? You're just like pissing off people on the internet to nothing better to do. That stuff blows over in a couple of days. You know, people get over it. People forget about it. They, they the, the 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 mob moves on. Yep. Um, so as long as you know what you're doing is not truly a bad thing, but just oh, you said something that some people were offended by. They move on. Yep. Yep. There's always something else to get offended by. All right. Exactly. One more question on the the rolling fund, and then we'll kind of bring her down, bring her home. But how does the rolling fund work? And like what is if, if if a listener is here listening and wants to invest with you or any other rolling fund, how does the rolling fund actually work? Yeah, so the way the rolling fund works is it really doesn't function that that differently from a, a regular venture capital fund. The only difference is LPs. So anyone can invest if if you're an accredited investor. Uh, the minimum's like eighty five hundred a quarter, a minimum of four quarters. Uh, so it's a quarterly commitment versus a one time commitment. And so it's like a subscription venture capital fund. I write fifty dollars to $75,000 checks in pre-seed to Series A businesses. Uh, I you know, help them grow and think about building teams. Uh, and yeah, we've invested in some awesome businesses. Uh, everything from, you know, I'm trying to think of some of the better known companies, maybe some of the bigger ones, like Italic, if you're familiar with them. Uh, Italic, I think the best way to, to describe them is it's, it's like a, a luxury Costco. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Italic. So that's a big one. And a bunch of others. I made about 25 investments to date. 
And yeah, I mean, the fund's only getting bigger. The investments are getting better. I'm really, really excited. This quarter, we have some awesome investments lined up. So yeah, I mean, you can go to my Twitter bio. It's right in there. If you're interested, and you can always DM me and, and ask any questions. I love it. So I would come to you and say, hey, I'm going to put 100 grand in and I'll layer that in over the next, call it 10 quarters. So you'll just kind of take 10 grand from me a quarter and whatever you get in that quarter is what I'm in. Yep, exactly. I, could I come in just quarter by quarter rather than make kind of a long outlay? Just say, hey, I can pick and choose what quarters I'm going to get in. No, you have to do four consecutive quarters. Got it. Cool. Well, we can chat about this another time, but we've we have two venture funds. We've been in 43 early stage companies. Um, and I've, I've found what you're doing fascinating and the rolling fund deal fascinating. So uh, we've just done it traditionally. But um, yeah, the rolling fund makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we'll have to talk more about it. I mean, for me, it was just a way to to get up and running quickly. And I like it. You know, it allows you to build in public a little bit more, which I'm a huge fan of. Talk about it more. Uh, so it's all and also like your my LP base is awesome. It's a bunch of founders, GPs of funds. It's it's a it's a good time. And so I, I really enjoy it. I love it. All right. Do you have a childhood? experience that you kind of remember vividly that kind of shaped who you are today, whether it was at a moment in time or just something you did as a kid or a young person that kind of you wouldn't be where you are without it? So I'm not going to give you a very good answer because my answer is I have a terrible memory, a terrible, <laughs> terrible memory. And so no vivid memory, but, uh, you know, my, my parents very much, you know, parented in a pretty hands-off way. Not in a bad way at all, but they were very hands-off. Both my parents worked a lot. My mom commuted to Annapolis. And so they let me do my own thing. And I think that at times that was not a great thing. <laughs> but when it comes to entrepreneurship, like, I've just learned to be very independent, figure things out, uh, solve, uh, solve problems. And yeah, I think that parenting style uh, certainly has led me to be, you know, I was never, I was not like, I wasn't like really in the grand scheme of things. I wasn't rebellious, right? Like I wasn't, doing drugs or everything gets get, get sent to, you know, like a, a boarding school because of, because of, I was a bad kid, but I was just a little bit of a, I was just able to be experimental and learn on my own. And I think that's helped me a lot as a, as an entrepreneur now. I love it. Is there something that's on your mind a lot lately that's consuming your thoughts or maybe something that you're really convicted or believing in that uh, maybe a lot of people aren't thinking about right now? I'm actually writing a, a post on this now. I said I was going to launch it last week. It's not ready yet, but I'm thinking a lot about the future of venture capital. What does it look like, right? When everyone can launch a fund, what actually differentiates VCs? Who's going to make it in 10 years? Who's not? What's going to happen? And I'm thinking a lot about that. Uh, and yeah, I think this rise of these solo capitalists is a, is a big deal. Right? There's just so much access to capital. Anyone can raise a fund if you have an audience. And so, of course, that's going to lead to some really great things and some not so great things. And I think online too often do people focus on or think about the negative things way too much. Oh, what are the negative side effects of social media? What are the negative side effects of a lot of venture capital funding? And I like to think about things differently and think about what are the positive things? What are the good things that are going to come out of uh, me running a fund and everyone else running a fund? And yeah, that, that's what I'm... That's what I'm thinking about. And so 
we'll we'll see. I'll pub, I'll, I'll publish some thoughts at some point, maybe this weekend, or I'll, I'll finish up next weekend. We'll see. But I just think what matters in VC is going to change over the next decade, and I want to be on the right side of where things are going. Can you expand just a little bit more? Like, what are the things you just think might change the most? Is it again, like, if Elon Musk starts a fund? Obviously, he has distribution better than just about anybody on the internet. That's a, you know, that's a big change. Or is there something else that you're thinking about at a deeper level? Yeah, I think VC is a bar. So the first thing is VC is going to be a barbell, right? If and I think Mark Andreessen talks about this, but it's you know you either have to be on one end of the barbell. One end is is the biggest. So that's A16Z. That's Sequoia, and they're always going to be around. They're going to be successful because of the brand, because of the size of their funds. Uh, they can win any deal they want, basically. On the other end, you have to be the best at something, to be super niche, right? So, you know, what is going to make you stand out, right? For me, it's I'm a current operator and I understand media. For someone else, maybe they're a product design driven firm. For someone else, you know, maybe they understand communities better than anyone else. But if you're not one of those two, like, why, why would anyone take your money, right? When the, the, historically, the problem with taking money from angels was, even super rich people, yeah, they'll put 25K in a company, maybe 100K in an early stage company, but they're not going to write many $100,000 checks a year. But now, if it's me plus 75 LPs, I can become a fund, basically. And so why is, why is a couple hundred million dollar fund going to succeed if they don't have anything that differentiates them? And I think that's the first thing. And the second thing, I tweeted this the other week and people disagreed, so I need to articulate my thoughts better. But I do believe distribution is the future of venture capital. I believe, you know, I, I tweeted basically the future best venture capitalists or, or solo capitalists, you know, individual investors are going to have built-in distribution, are going to have distribution and have to provide distribution for their companies. And everyone responded and the common critique was like, oh, those people don't know anything about VC. And I think my answer is, a lot of them don't. Yes, I didn't say every person who has an audience is going to be a successful VC. I just said the people who are going to be the best investors are going to be in the subset of people who have an audience. And the other push, the, the final piece of pushback was, you know, people were saying, well, you know, I have people on my board or investors who are former operators, they ran big companies, and they add so much value, and they're incredible. And I don't disagree with that either. I think what I'm trying to say is that the difference between that person and the second best person is not that big of a difference, right? That person may be incredible, but there are going to be, especially with all these companies exiting, there are going to be hundreds, if not thousands of former operators, investors who scaled billion dollar SaaS businesses and sold them. And they're all kind of the same. They're all going to give the same advice, the same way. They're all great, but they're all going to become commoditized because there's going to be so many of them. What's never going to be commoditized is distribution. And if you can provide new customers for seed and series A businesses, you are going to be invaluable. And the difference between the person who can do this best and the person who can do the second best, there's going to be a big, big gap. And there's going to be a power law in that. In a way, I don't think there's going to be a power law in being a good board member, offering good advice. There are going to be so many people who can do that, but so few people who have dedicated audiences who can convince their audience to try, test, or buy your product. Mm. I'm excited about the future. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have hardly near as much as you do, but having 
25,000 followers on Twitter has certainly changed my life. Um, the verdict's out if that's going to be a net positive over the long run or the negative, but I can feel what you're saying, just having more of a voice as we grow. Yeah, that's super interesting. All right, man. What's the best way for folks to reach you or your rolling fund? Yeah, they can they can uh, follow me on Twitter, Austin underscore Reef, R-I-E-F. Uh, give me a follow. Give, shoot me a DM. Would love to chat with anyone. Awesome, man. Austin, thanks so much today for uh, for chatting with me. This was this was excellent. This was awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad glad to do it and happy to do it again. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.